Get up and walk. Not you guys, that's the title of a message this morning. From John chapter 15 verses 1, uh, John chapter 5 verses 1 to 15. John chapter 5 verses 1 to 15. If you were to read uh, the Gospel of John for the first time, and maybe some of you can remember back that far, but just imagine it reading it for the first time. It is different to the other Gospel. And one of the things that strikes you is the simplicity of the language. In fact, when we went through theological college, one of the, the books that they gave us to start out on, on our Greek was actually the Gospel of John because of its the simple language that is used. But it's also, because of its simplicity, is one of the reasons that it is recommended for those who are starting out in the Christian faith, those who are babes in Christ. But more than that, for example, the, the Billy Graham uh, Association uh, recommends the Gospel of John to young converts because John gives testimony after testimony after testimony about who Jesus is and why Jesus came into the world. Everything seems to be pointing in him in a very particular sharp way. And yes, John's Gospel is different from the others in that his primary goal is not to give a historical treatment of the life of Jesus. John's purpose is to exalt the person of Jesus so that men believe in him and are saved. That is the stated purpose of the book in chapter 20. That is not to minimise the historicity that the things that are mentioned, that are described in John, actually happen at a time and a place in history. And John tells us that he wasn't, a, he wasn't able to, to tell us all the things that Jesus did because if all the things that Jesus did were recorded, that at that time there wouldn't be enough books in the world to be able to record every one of them. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? But of course it is futile, but it would be interesting to ponder some of the stories that weren't included. But the ones that are included are there for a particular reason because they follow a certain theme. Why is this one included? Just ask it. I think because this story that we read earlier is a paradigm for the way in which Jesus comes into the lives of the destitute, those who are unable to do anything for themselves. He comes in and transforms their lives. But it's, it's trans, the process of transformation is more than just the miracle because there are further challenges down the road. After all, isn't that what Jesus has done for us as well? 
is coming to our lives, but the process of growing and maturing continues in stages and steps and sometimes two steps forward and one step back, that type of thing. So let's get into our text for this morning. John chapter 5 verses 1 to 3. A sorry sight, a sorry sight. Sometime later Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people use to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed. Once again, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And rather than stay away from places such as this, he makes the point to go to the pool where all these people with diseases and disabilities were hanging out. He didn't go there for a holiday to bathe in the pool. This place, I'll show you some pics in a, in a little bit because this is one of the places that you visit when you go to Jerusalem. This place is a reminder that we live in a broken world. In our country we take for granted our hospitals our hospices for the sick, for the dying. In many developing countries, it is not like this. People just die. Spirit of thought for those in Jesus' day. What are all those ailing people doing there at the pool of Bethesda? And this is what it... Uh, I'll just show you some of the pics. This is what it looks like. So, you, the language there is of colonnades and all of that, and you say it must be beautiful. Just go back a little bit. One, yeah, see your colonnades and all of that. It says, gee, that must be a beautiful spot. Well, it's in ruins now. It must have been pretty nice in those days. But can you imagine all the... It's a very vast area. Right around all the sick the dying, the paralysed, and they'd just be hanging out there. A sorry sight that would be. And uh, just, just the next one. Just at the bottom of the pool there, there's, a, there's an area there. Yes, the water is pretty dark and murky, so it's not as, as beautiful and clear as it could have been in the, at the time of Jesus because there's a, there's, a, there's a fountain there. All these people can do here is wait around this pool trying to figure out a way how to get healed. They are in hopes that when the waters start to churn a little bit, that if they get in, it might heal them. And some of the versions actually mention that an angel would come, that was the, the belief, that an angel will come and stir the waters and whoever is the first one to jump in, well, he'll be the one that, that gets healed. Some of the more reliable manuscripts uh, omits. So if you read your NIV, you see that we jump from verse 3 to verse 5. Where is verse 4? Okay, anyway, look it up. 
but the more reliable ones omit that. But can you imagine, can you imagine the, the pushing, the shoving, the tripping over that takes place as every ailing person desperately strives to be the, the first one to get into the water? What a, what a pathetic sight, sad. All these people sort of crawling over one another, hopping, rolling, clawing their way to the water's edge to be the first one. That was their belief. What chaos. And then, even if one person was healed, even if one person was healed, it wouldn't be the most needy person because the one with the smallest ailment, he'll be the first one to get in there. Don Carson says, To be true to the text, and I quote, he says, to be true to the text, there would be a very large group of sick and hurting people gathered at the pool of Bethesda. Every one of them would be hopelessly incurable. Nothing, nothing could be more, could be done for them. All they could do is beg and hope and pray for a miracle. How eager all of them would be to, to believe the stories and the superstitions and everything that about the the miraculous healings at this pool, even if they never actually seen anybody get healed. End of quote. And Jesus walks right in the middle of all of that suffering. John doesn't affirm or deny that Jesus went around and healed everybody. We don't have confirmation of that. What we do know is that Jesus targeted one particular fellow. So all that we can do is just assume that Jesus, out of all the sick people there, he healed one. At least one. Yes, the social justice warriors of today will be saying, well, why didn't he heal everybody? How cruel is that? What, is a lucky dip or something, is it? That's discrimination. Why did he go to that fellow? Shouldn't he be here going everywhere and healing everybody? No. That's what you think. Are you God? No. And you know how the whole argument goes? He healed one. A searching question, verses 5 to 7. Searching question. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me, which is what we've been talking about. This man has been there for 38 years. We don't know exactly what was wrong with him, but he is immobilised with some malady 
that he's unable to move. So paralysis is a, is a pretty safe assumption. Jesus comes to this particular fellow. He walks up to him and asks him this question that seems quite remarkable, doesn't it? Do you want to get well? He's been a cripple for almost four decades and Jesus comes up to him and asks him, do you want to be healed? And we're thinking, a duh. Of course he wants to get well. Of course he wants to get well. Who wouldn't want to get, get healed from this paralysis? Who in their right mind? It's like me walking with a couple of suitcases full of money down the street down in Liverpool with a million dollars full of cash and just picking out any, any random person saying, do you want a million bucks? Here you go, mate. Yeah, sure. You know, who, who would say, well, what type of question is that? This is a trick, right? What's going on? Is that camera's here somewhere? But Jesus always has a reason why he asks the questions that he asks. The thing is that sometimes what we think is our greatest need, our biggest problem, is not really our greatest need or our biggest problem. This man thinks he understands what his problem is but the reality is he has a much bigger problem. So the the question is not as, as silly as it may first appear because Jesus is driving at the at the very heart of this man's problem and from what we read later on it has to be a problem of the heart. His problem was more than just his physical paralysis. His problem lay in his will, in his psyche, in his heart. So a clue a clue to this lays in response to in the in the response to Jesus' question. When Jesus asked him, Do you wanna get healed? Do you want to get well? He didn't he doesn't respond yes. Instead he goes on to to do what? He starts playing the victim card, which is a very popular card today. Everybody's holding some type of victim card. If you haven't used it yet, well, there's something wrong with you. And the one with the victim story that is most tragic and everything else, then you've got the top card. That's the, that's the ace. Everybody tries to be a bigger victim than the other person. You hear it in the speech. You see it on television, the news, everywhere. It's, it's malady of our day. What was the victim card that he played? Well, it's the failure of others who will not help him into the pool and others beat him to it. So, he can't move, 
Nobody will help him. And even if somebody was able to, by the time he gets there, it's too late because somebody already beat him to it. Nicodemus, we looked at Nicodemus in in chapter 3 and he, a teacher, a professor of theology and all of that, he had spiritual insight. So Jesus was able to communicate with him about spiritual things. Even the woman at the well, with Jesus he was able to talk about spiritual things. And she understood it eventually. But this guy seems to have no spiritual insight, no theological content in this discussion. There is no sign of of faith at all. He seems to be just totally dull when it comes to spiritual matters. So we ask ourselves, after all of these years, what happened? Did he grow attached to his mat after 38 years? After all of these years, and if healing does come, he doesn't know this, but if, if, if healing does come, is he willing to pick up his life to resume a normal life and, and contribute like the rest of humanity, by playing his role, by playing his part as a responsible human being. Someone who is used to giving rather than taking. Or is he, because of all of these years, it's just too hard, too difficult. What am I going to do? How am I going to make a living? Who's going to, you know, I don't know any trade or anything. What, you expect him to go to school, start again? What? Is he willing to continue to beg? Because you see, after all of this, if, if he does get better and he's able to walk and stand up and everything else, it's much harder to draw sympathy if you are fully fit, isn't it? So what's wrong with you? Why aren't you working? It's much harder to draw sympathy. Obviously, more than anyone, Jesus is qualified to ask the question because more than anyone, he is able to provide the solution. He is able to transform this man's life from the inside out. But the question remains, do you desire it? God sees our problem. God sees your problem and mine. But do you see your problem? Unless you know what the problem is, you cannot find the answer. Or you might end up giving the wrong answer to the wrong question. Do you want to be made whole? And that's the issue, isn't it? Whenever we share the gospel, that we, we share the, the hope that Jesus brings with somebody and we ask the question, do you, 
want to be made right with God? Do, do you want to understand what the abundant life is all about? Do you want the, the Holy Spirit to start transforming your life? I don't want any of that. I don't need any of that. Why? I'm alright, thanks. So if you don't know what the, the need is, if you don't appreciate what the problem is, there's no, there's no solution. What, what, why? Why do I need salvation? Save him from what? I'm fine, thanks. All good, bro. Happy Larry. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? I think he can walk, Jesus could walk to anybody in the Liverpool area and ask the same question. Well, from what? Do you want to be made whole? In verse 8, we look at the miracle. Verse 8, Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once this man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. By the way that John writes here, it's almost as if Jesus doesn't wait for the man to finish up, finish giving his excuses. And, and it's everybody else's fault. I think. So by the time he says, look, just pick up your mat and walk, alright? That's the power of Jesus. And, and, and unless Jesus meant that, it would be really cruel, wouldn't it? It would be a, such a cruel joke to, to say to somebody who is paralysed, get up, pick up your mat and walk. He doesn't say to him, look, here's my card, send me 50 bucks in the mail and then I'll send you a handkerchief or whatever. If you do three prayers a day, then you should be fine, you should be blessed. doesn't do any of that. Jesus heals with his word, with his powerful word. That's the Jesus we worship. That's the Jesus that saves, that, that we adore. And all of these things point to the power of Jesus to be able to bring dead hearts alive. It's like the prophet being taken out to the valley of dry bones. Can these bones live? Ezekiel 37. Only you know, Lord. Speak to these bones and they will come alive. Speak to these paralysed limbs and slowly but surely all those, all those, those muscles, that were, there was no muscle there, there's no tissue, there. it's all atrophy, it's just skin and bones. It's never been used and suddenly there is the strength, there is the power to stand up and to walk. You just, just imagine it. Jesus has the power to, to bring dead hearts alive. Without Jesus, our hearts would also be dead. Oh, they'll be pumping blood and all that type of stuff, but, but dead. We are, we are spiritual invalids. We are blind. We are paralysed, hopeless without the power of Jesus. 
That's why whenever you get into again into a, you get into a, this evangelistic discussion or whatever, and you share Jesus with people, and the, one of the, the favourite expressions is, "Yes, I I think Jesus was a great moral teacher." This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says that those who say that Jesus was only a moral teacher are the same are on the same level, on the same plane as the man who says that he's a poached egg. Might as well say the same thing. If that, if that is all you think that Jesus was, a moral teacher, then you might as well say he's a post aid. There's no difference. Either Jesus is a lunatic or he is God. To those of us who believe he is God. God, the incarnate word. In verses 9 to 13, we look at the reaction. Imagine the scene. Here comes this guy who has been crippled for almost four decades now. He comes straddling along through town with his, with his bed, you know, on his back and all of that. He's going along. He's happy. And everybody sort of, wow, look at you. What happened to you? And, and, but it, that's not the word that he hears. That's not the word that he hears. You know, it's not, you're walking, look, you look fantastic. I've never seen you walk be- before. Look, it's so great. I'm so happy for you. No. Why are you carrying your bed? Like, why? Um, walking. No, 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 no. Forget that. Why are you carrying your bed? It's the Sabbath, okay? You cannot carry your bed on the Sabbath, apparently. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. The Old Testament does say you must not do any unnecessary work on the Lord's day. No carrying of loads in order to make a profit on the Sabbath. But after the the law of the Old Testament became the rabbinical codes and, and all of that, which added all these extra laws. You can't light a fire on the Sabbath, for example. So in a traditional Jewish family, a fire uh, has got to do with light. So even the very act of lighting, you walk into a room and you light a switch to turn the electricity on, that would be considered as work. You know that. That's why in the eastern suburbs, uh, even the, the pushing the button for the pedestrian crossings, it's automatic. It's uh, even just pushing is work. Okay, that's the level of that's the stuff that Jesus had to deal with. All right. So carrying a mat, according to the rabbinical codes, is a big no-no. I'm walking. Look, look. I'm flapping my arms. I'm, you know, I'm dancing. I'm doing all this stuff. No, no, no. You're carrying a mat. Big red card there. Do we sometimes lose focus? 
Like, it's sad, isn't it? Where is the joy in, in the lives and the celebration and all of these, all the, all the wonderful things that God is doing that we have to go nitpicking on stupid things that ultimately have no value? Oh, don't worry, Jesus is going to get to the heart of the matter here, but for goodness sake, can we just be happy for a little while at least that this man is walking? Please. One thing is certain, that whenever Jesus is at work, you can expect opposition. It happened 2,000 years ago, it happens today. And the opposition will get louder and louder. Right through our church history, whenever Jesus is growing, expanding his kingdom, Satan is always going to be there fighting him, opposing Jesus and his kingdom every step of the way. Every step of the way. It's just the way it is. And finally, a warning from verses 14 to 15. 14 to 15. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Jesus said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What could be worse than being a cripple? Well, that's pretty bad, but how about eternity in hell? That would be pretty bad. That would be pretty bad in my books. So what's the issue here? Jesus isn't saying that it was because of a particular sin that that man had been crippled for all of those years. Jesus is saying that the issue is this man's holiness not his health. Jesus seeks him out even at the temple. He's not content just to heal this man's legs. He's not just happy to heal him physically. He wanted to heal his heart. Let me go out on another limb. You know how I like to go out on a limb? This is not gospel. This is Paul's Mosachuk interpretation of filling in the blanks, let's call it. When you are crippled, and God willing, it never happens to any of us, but just imagine if you're a cripple, how much trouble can you get into if you're a cripple? Any ideas? Well, now that he is fully abled, 
It is possible that he wanted to make up for some lost time with perhaps the ladies of the opposite, those members of the opposite sex. And in this newfound freedom, he was becoming imprisoned to something worse than the crippling disease for the last four decades. Can you see my point? It's not entirely outside of the realms of possibility, is it? And if anyone out there came and said to you, stop it or else, you would probably respond, and this is something perhaps even that you've heard about, stop it or else, or what? What are you going to do about it? I can do what I want. You're not going to stop me. But out of all of the people who could say these words and mean it because it was the truth, it was Jesus. Jesus has already healed this man physically, but he wasn't done with him, as we said. He seeks him out in the temple. But the evidence of a changed heart, of a converted life, of uh, of a regenerate soul, is there has to be evidence of his new life. There has to be evidence that he is born again. There has to be evidence that he will not go on sinning anymore. All those sins that he wasn't able to do when he was a cripple, now he was starting to do those things and just living like the rest of the world. But, but Jesus is saying to me, hang on, don't do that stuff. I've showered you with my grace and mercy. I've made you well. But something worse can happen to you. Something much, much worse than being paralysed. I don't expect you to be sinless, Jesus could be saying to him, but I want to change your desire. I want you to, the desire has to be within you to be free from sin. And this is the context upon which Jesus' words about cutting a hand or plucking out an eye makes sense, doesn't it? Our abilities can get us into a lot more trouble than our disabilities. This good looks that you see right here can get me into a lot of trouble. Now, if I was ugly, like, you know, people we know, Your ugliness is a benefit because it'll stop you being, you know, in temptation. So, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. Our abilities, you know, being, having all these wonderful abilities to talk, intelligent, good looking and, and muscly and all of this type of stuff and sporting and all of this. Wow, that can get you into a lot of trouble. Ability 
seems to open up the world. Everybody wants to hang around with a winner. Somebody who's good. Everybody wants to follow them on Facebook and Instagram. And watching dazzle their, do their stuff with their footwork on the soccer field or the sporting field or whatever. Wow, and everybody drools, just want to, you know, worship the ground that they walk on and all that. You can have anybody you want, they say. Anything you want, it's all there. Ability brings independence to do more. Thomas Huxley, who even described himself, we're talking about the 1800s here, he describes himself as Darwin's, Charles Darwin's bulldog. And uh, once Thomas, he said this, he says, and I quote, a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do as he likes. I'll quote again. A man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do as he likes. And Jesus said to this man, stop sinning or something else, something worse may happen to you. Why do... Why does God give us abilities, talents and gifts? Why does he give us all this stuff? Because he wants us to use it for the greater good. Why does he give us a mind? Why does he even give us the ability to talk and and to to mingle and, and, and different Characters, we're all different in one way or another. We're good with something, we're not good with others, but on the things that you are good, he says, I want you to use whatever gifts you have for my glory, not for your own freedom, not for your own dependence, not to take advantage, not to just go out and do as you please. No. Your freedom that I've given you is so the freedom to serve me, to serve in my kingdom. Don't use them for your own selfish ends, please. Think about the consequences in whatever you do. Is it for your glory or is it for my glory? Not that we are going to be sinless, but that our desires would be that we would be free from sin. We should be aiming in that direction. To be free from sin, that should be our desire. Do we love these things more than we love God? Do we love life and all the enjoyment of life rather than Jesus? Jesus is saying to us, above all things, you should desire to be like me. Seek first my kingdom and all these other things will be added unto you. 
this man who was just healed now after all of those years was straight away heading in a different direction and so Jesus seeks him out. Now, Jesus could be seeking some of us out because he's not done with us yet and saying this very same thing. Stop sinning, whatever it is you're doing, or something worse may happen to you. Seek holiness. Seek to serve me. Seek to glorify me in your life. Your body is my temple. You don't own it, I own it. So seek to worship me, even in your body, in the abilities I've given you, in everything. I hope and pray that we learn the lesson from this man. And I hope that this man listened to Jesus' words and that he lived a fruitful and productive life after all that Jesus had done for him. And I hope and pray that God will use us with all the gifts and abilities and talents that he's given us that we might use these for his glory and honour. Amen.